And we'll be in several different places in the book of Joshua, but we can't read the whole thing today. Uh, if you're new here, we've spent the whole fall going through the book of Genesis. So we took our time, uh, relatively, and now we're trying to go through the rest of the Bible. So we're not taking our time uh, now. We're trying to get through the rest of the Bible, 65 other books. And we did um, Exodus last week and talked about Moses, and that basically ends Deuteronomy. And here we find ourselves in uh, Joshua. I love the book, the idea of leadership, and especially biblical leadership. So I love this book. And I want you to turn with me, before we look at the text, to your table of contents. I don't know if you've ever looked at that before. It's buried there, right, the very beginning, the first few pages of your of your Bibles, very helpful, especially if you're trying to navigate your way around the Bible. And, you know, you should never sort of sheepishly turn to the table of contents. You ever feel like bad, like, I don't know where this book is. Uh, and you, you hope nobody's looking and you're like, where's Nahum? I don't even know, you know. So don't feel bad about that. That's it's hard to memorize all those minor prophets. But I, I just want you to see the, the table of contents and become familiar with how the, these 39 books of the Old Testament are put together. The first five books are called the Pentateuch. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy or the Book of Moses or the Law or the Torah. If you're Jewish, those are the first five books, and they're attributed to Moses. And that basically brings you from creation, Genesis 1-1, to the end of Deuteronomy. And that's the end of Moses' life. And then we make a transition to Joshua. And the next 12 books are books of history, Israel's history. So if you look at with me, Joshua, the, the sixth book is the beginning of Israel's history. That's probably about 1400 B.C. And we get down to Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. That's about a thousand years later. So maybe 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C. So it's basically just taking you through the history of Israel for those uh, thousand years. Then you have these five books called Wisdom or Wisdom and Poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And then the final 17 books are the Prophets. Uh, the first five, the major prophets, the next 12, the minor prophets. And basically, you think of the prophets as the preachers during the thousand years of history. So when you find any of these prophets, uh, they fit in somewhere between 1400 and 400. And they were specifically given a message of some kind, depending on where the people were, the God's people, the Israelites. And they came and proclaimed this particular message. And so they're the preachers all the way through that uh, 1,400 years. So that's basically where we are. And we're now making a transition. We're making a transition out of the law, out of the Torah, into the books of the Israelites' history. And the first one of those books is Joshua. Uh, it, Moses has led the people out of Egypt into the wilderness. They were disobedient to God, so he let a generation pass, 40 years, and now it's 40 years later, and Joshua is leading the people from the wilderness across the River Jordan and into the Promised Land or the land of Canaan. So Joshua's uh, leadership is really a fulfillment of a 600-year-old promise. Imagine that. 
Remember way back when we studied Genesis chapter 12 and Abraham was chosen and we don't have any idea anything about Abraham's history. Just God's mercy came to him and, and, and Abraham was promised, you are, you're going to build a great nation. I'm going to give you a land and you're going to be the father. You're going to be the patriarch of a great nation. Genesis chapter 12. Now, 600 years later, God's ready to fulfill that promise. We talked about this a little last week. Is it okay if God gives a promise and 600 years later, that's when he decides to fulfill it? See, it doesn't matter if it's okay. It's, that's the way God operates. But I just want you to know your timeline and my timeline, very different than God's timeline. So it might have something in mind, but the way he's going to fulfill it is, is 600 years later. And Joshua is the beginning of this f- fulfillment. He's bringing these people now into the promised land. Now, when you look at the book of Joshua, very easy to divide in terms of a structure because there's 24 chapters and it divides evenly in two. So chapters 1 through chapter 12 is the the conquest of the land. The people are crossing over the River Jordan, and they're taking over this territory we know of as Israel. And then chapters 13 through 24 is just a, a, a discussion about the occupation of the land. Each one of the 12 tribes of Jacob get a piece of land, and there's some uh, information about that occupation. So we have we first of all have the conquest, and then we have the occupation and so that's where we are with Joshua. Everybody dialed in? Not even if you're not. Just yes, okay, and we're dialed in. That was the background. We've got the, the setup. And so because of our time is, time is so limited and there's so much here, I would love to say, what I want to try to do is just briefly address a thorny issue that comes up specifically when you read the book of Joshua. It could come up in other places, but it comes up particularly here. And then I just want to give three highlights. And I think when we go through the three highlights, particularly as you think about your prayer card, if you haven't already sealed it up, you might say, gosh, I got to unseal this now and write this down. My hope is there'll be some application for you as you think about 2016. You think about what you want us to be praying for you about. I'm betting one or more of these highlights would be something that God would use to speak to you to say, yeah, that's something I need to work on, I need to pray about, and I would love to have someone praying for me. So the first thing I want to just talk about, again, briefly, is this thorny issue in Joshua, and the thorny issue is God's judgment and destruction. Again, you could see it in different places in the Bible, but it's maybe easiest to see it in Joshua. So turn with me to Joshua chapter 6, verse 17. Joshua has crossed the river of the River Jordan, and he's about ready to, to attack the very first city. And you probably, some of you will remember this. This is Joshua fought the battle of what? Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. And what happened? And the walls came tumbling down, right? And so this is the, the beginning of this battle. This is the first entry city. You cross over the River Jordan, and the first sort of major city is kind of a citadel. It's the, it's the city that looks sort of east and west and north and south. So it's a strategically located city. And Joshua is going to march around the city, you remember, and blow the trumpets on the seven day, and the walls are going to come tumbling down. And this is, this is what God says about that battle. Chapter 6, verse 17. And the city, this is Jericho, 
and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Just to clarify, verse 21, same chapter. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. So what happens a lot of times is, if, especially if you're very unfamiliar with the Bible or unfamiliar with Christianity, you kind of read something like this and you just kind of, I don't, that's as far as I need to go. I don't want to believe in a God who acts and judges in that kind of way. And that derails a lot of people. Derails a lot of people who are just young in their faith. I just can't believe God would, would act and judge in that kind of way. And there's lots of great answers to it. I'll give you a couple of resources in the uh, newsletter this week, but let me just make a few comments to that kind of thinking. First of all, it's just helpful to know it's not the first time we've run into an, an issue like this in the Bible. What's, what's the main, main time God acted with judgment and destruction? Noah and the ark. So now it wasn't just a city. It was a whole world. So if you have a problem with this, you're going to have a problem in a lot of other places in the Bible. And since we've been going through Genesis, that would be a main problem. God comes in, and just if these few people make it, these few animals make it, but the rest of the world is destroyed, it can create some disturbance. The, the way I would try to begin to answer that, again, it can be a longer answer, but uh, it, the problem is the sin of humanity. It starts back in Genesis chapter 3. And because of the fall of mankind, which we're all attached to in the person of Adam, we, we all are now object, objects of God's rightful wrath. We have turned our backs on our creator. And so the creator can do whatever he wants in the, it, that would be right. And if we're the objects of his wrath, then however the destruction could happen, it's all right in God's eyes. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. All of us at one time lived apart from God. We, we were sinners. We're separated from God. And when we were doing that, we were gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. We were following its desires. And we were by nature objects of God's wrath. So it's just helpful to have this, helpful to understand from the Bible's point of view, if you're trusting the Bible, and I, I hope you would, that no one is innocent before God. There's no innocent people in the world. So you can't say, well, the child or the, my grandma, she sure was sweet. I mean, just we're not saying there aren't some nice people, but in terms of, of how God sees people, they've all turned their back. And so everybody is an object of God's rightful wrath. And God doesn't, doesn't owe anything to anyone. You can't do enough to say, well, but, you know, you did all these great things, so God somehow is beholden to you. It doesn't work that way. So God, God has a rightful judgment against all people. But the other thing that we read in the Bible, and this is the great news, but he's merciful. 
He's merciful for people who are saying, I don't want to have anything to do with you, God. He continues to pursue those kinds of people, and he pursues them in his mercy. Again, just following Paul's words in Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. See, the shocking thing about God's character in the Bible is not that he would, he would have judgment. It's that he would have mercy. It shouldn't shock anybody that God is a judge. What should be shocking is despite my sin, he still is pursuing me. That's what's so shocking. But so often we get to passages like this and just say, I can't see God being a judge, but he definitely is a judge. It's not the first time. We can see that we're objects of God's wrath because of our sin. And third, the, the, a third thing that's maybe helpful here is, is Joshua is being used as an instrument of God's judgment. Uh, earlier in the Bible, God said he was waiting for the sins of the Amorites or the Canaanites, the people who were in the land, for their sin to reach a sort of full amount. In other words, he was mercifully being patient. He was waiting and you know how long he waited for these people to hear who he was, to turn around? 400 years. 400 years his creation spoke out that who God was. That they could turn and know the living God in some way. But, but they refused and they, they served these very grotesque pagan gods. And so one of the rituals in the, in the pagan system that the Amorites had is you would come to worship and there would be prostitutes here in your worship service that you would engage in as part of your worship. For 400 years this was happening. Then the, another god, the god called Moloch, you would have this great fire and in the fire was like a, a steel idol. And it had arms more or less sort of put out straight. And it, so it was this burning furnace. And around it there were these priests that would beat these drums. So they're beating the drums. And you would throw your baby into the fire. And the reason the drums were so loud is you had to drown out the scream of the infant. So that was happening for 400 years. And God is patiently waiting for these people to turn. And they don't. And he uses Joshua to come in as part of his instrument of judgment. So when we read chapter 6, verse 17 or 21, it may be that your first reaction is to be suspicious of God. And I would just ask you to first be suspicious of man. There's just stuff you don't know. And instead of saying, oh my gosh, how could a God be like this? You'd say, oh my gosh, how can mankind be like this? And how could God wait 400 years? How could God be so merciful? How could he be patient with people like this? It's also not the last time there's going to be a judgment. Revelation twenty eleven. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the great white throne, and books were opened, and one book was the book of life. 
and each person was judged. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's going to be the final judgment. That day is ahead of us, and it's ahead of every living or dead being. And that will be a final judgment. And maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. And what I'd want you to hear is, He's been merciful. He's, he's let you get up one more day. He's, he's let you to come here to hear the gospel. He, he's allowed in his mercy for you to continue to live apart from him. And he's saying, come back, come back, come to me, turn, repent from your old ways and turn towards me. What's remarkable is that there's a God who's loving enough to put up with our sinful habits our sinful deeds, as gross as they may be, and continues to offer a way home. And so my plea for you, maybe you just want to write on your card, I don't want to be an object of wrath, I want to be an object of mercy in 2016. There are other ways to try to answer that question, but I think that begins to help you understand verses like that. Now, let me get to these three highlights, these three things that I want you to make sure, if you read through Joshua, these are three things I would want you to make sure that you see. Number one, when you read through Joshua, you've got to see the God-centeredness of Joshua's life. That's number one. This is one highlight. You see it all the way through the book. But I want you to see the God-centeredness of of Joshua's life. This book is named after him, but I'm pretty certain he would rather have the book named after the Lord. Because he's always pointing people to the Lord. And we see this in the very beginning, chapter 3. Turn with me there, chapter 3, verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, this is before they're going to cross the river Jordan, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. See that chapter three, verse five. He goes out, consecrate yourselves. He's, he's bringing the Israelites over the river Jordan for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. You know what he doesn't say? Tomorrow you will do wonders. This doesn't have anything to do with you. This rescue is all about God. And tomorrow, you get a front row seat, but you're not on the stage. You get a front row seat to the wonders of what God has done. So everything about Joshua, from the very beginning to the very end, he's always pointing to what the Lord is doing, what the Lord has done. And so all the glory goes to the Lord. And we see it at the very end, Joshua chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Just let's look at those again. This is Now, that was the very first speech of Joshua's life. Hey, get ready. We're going to go over. Now, here we are at the very end of his life, chapter 24, verse 3. Joshua gives a, a history lesson. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and I led him through the land of Canaan, and, and I made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And then they, then they went down to Egypt, verse 4, and then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, and I did that in the midst of it, and I brought you out, verse 6, I, I brought you to my fathers, and in verse 7, you cried out to the Lord, but I, I put darkness between you and the Egyptians, I brought you into the land that you're coming into, verse 8, and, and, and I fought for you, and I gave you the, this land. Sixteen times in these verses, 
God, Joshua refers to God. So you don't have to be an English professor to figure out who's the subject of this paragraph. It's all about God. And here's Joshua at the very beginning of his life and the very end of his life. He's trying to point people to God. It's all about God. I'm so God-centered with my life. Everything I do, I want somebody to say, yeah, Joshua is a great military general, but it's really all about God. He's always trying to deflect people to God. Now, today, if you're a football fan, you're going to watch football, right? So you're going to watch the Carolina Panthers probably or, or whoever else is playing that's your team. And if somebody scores, it's fairly likely they're, they're, they're going to do something like this. Now, if you're not a football fan, you don't know what that means. But you've just scored. You've just done something great. And when they do this, what are they saying? This is my name. I want everybody to know Phillips just did that. You'll probably see that today. Joshua never does this. I want all glory to to be to God. Everything about Joshua's life is pushing people to see the glory of God. And see, just maybe something on your prayer card would be, I've got to live more of a a God-glorifying, God-centered life. I spend too much of my time like this. Now, I don't go around like this, but I'm real worried about my resume. I'm really, really worried about the way I look. I'm really worried about what I do. I'm really worried about how other people see me. I'm usually spending my time working on Phillips. And people see his image. People see his platform. And what I want to do in 2016 is, is people to see God and see God's platform. So there's a God-centeredness to, to how Joshua lives his life. Second thing I want us to highlight is this, this, um, these two things that happen through the book. Sin and sincerity is how I listed that. So, so one highlight is this God-centeredness, the way Joshua lived his life. Secondly, what we see through these 24 chapters is sin and then sincerity. It's a very familiar sort of pattern for people. It's not just for Joshua's people, but for us. Sin, despite God's faithfulness, the, the people continue to sin. And the sin is very disastrous for the Israelites. And then there's this sort of renewal covenant. There's something that they do or they say, hey, we're going to serve the Lord. And I think it's a sincerity like, yes, we've fallen down. We, we feel badly. We're repenting and we're sincerely saying we're recommitting ourselves to God. We're recognizing what we've done and we're, we're recommitting. So sin it happens in, in many ways. I just want to point out two. First, the, the sin of commission. You know what that is? The sin of commission is I know what I should do, but I don't do it. So, so I know how something should work. I, I know something that, that I should do, but I, I just don't do it. And so, um, well, let me say it this way. You do something you know you shouldn't do. You do something you know you shouldn't do. You commit a sin. Joshua chapter 6 and 7. You see this in the, the battle of Jericho. The battle of Jericho, uh, God gives these certain instructions. And what he says is, hey, when the walls come tumbling, a tumbling down, as the song goes, 
you're going to rush in and you're going to defeat these people. And then what I want you to do is all the gold and the silver and bronze, I want you to bring it to the, the priest and they're going to keep it in the sort of the temple of the Lord. The, it's going to be the Lord's. But everything else, and there's going to be lots of valuable things in this city, I just want you to keep it as like a big pile of rocks. I don't want you to take anything else out of the city. I'm going to eventually give you this entire land and this one city I just want you to leave alone. And it's not because things in the city are particularly bad. It's just a, a, a memory, a remember, a, an Ebenezer, a, a, a place to say, hey, God's really fighting the battles. He's the one who's really in control. So this one little thing, I'm going to have hands off. Now, do you think the people were able to keep their hands off the one thing? What does this remind you of? Genesis chapter 3. I, there's a whole garden. And you can have anything you want. Just one tree. Was the tree particularly bad? No. It was just a way of saying, you're not in control. You're not sovereign. And you're going to take over this whole land. I want to make sure you understand it's really about God. So I'm going to leave this one thing here to say, just don't touch that one thing. And a guy named Achan, he couldn't resist. He goes in, he takes some of the gold, some of the silver, and a coat for himself. And when you sin, what's the first thing you try to do? Hide. So he takes it back to his tent, and he buries it in his tent. Whether his wife knew or his children knew, we just know Achan did. And so they go to fight the next battle, and they lose, and God basically says, you know, somebody's committed this sin. And then let's look at chapter 7 together. Chapter 7, 22 through 25, Achan comes forward and says, yes, I've done it. And let's just hear this very clearly. Chapter 7, 22 through 25. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the silver, the cloak, the gold, his sons, his daughter, his animals, and everything they had, and they brought them to this particular valley. Joshua chapter 25, verse 25. Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today, and all of Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. That seems pretty severe, does it not? See, your sin is costly. It's extremely costly. And I'm wondering on your card if there's something buried in your life. Greed, anger, lust, apathy. And you just hope nobody's going to see it. But it's destroying you. And it's never just destroying you. It's destroying you and some group outside of you. Could be your family. Could be a church. Could be a community. And maybe on your card, there's just, Lord, this is what it is. 
I'm so embarrassed to even write it down. I'm just going to use some acronym or something. Because you just, it's like it's so hidden, but you know it. And you just say, I need somebody to pray for me that this would come out into the light in 2016 in a healthy way, be exposed, and then be eradicated. Not that you would be eradicated, but that sin would be eradicated from your life. So some of us have some sins of commission that need to be worked on. Some of us have some sins of omission. Sins of omission, something you didn't do that you should have done. Joshua chapter 9. Joshua and the other leaders are sort of going through the country, and they're having these battles in this one group of people called the Gibeonites see that they're not going to win. And so they deceptively make a treaty with Joshua and the leaders saying, hey, if we do these things, you you keep us protected. And that's not what was supposed to happen. And I want you to turn with with me, Joshua chapter 9, verse 14. And you probably are going to want to underline this in your Bible. It's okay to write in your Bible. Joshua chapter 9, verse 14. This is after they've made the treaty. And there's this exchange of provisions. We're going to give you this. You're going to protect us. So the men took some of their possessions. This is Joshua and the leaders. But what does it say? But did not ask counsel from the Lord. Oh, what a killer. I want to ask for a raise of hands who've done this. I just, I just self-assessed. Ask a couple of my buddies. They said, sounds like a good idea. So, it was a good idea. I never really gave time to prayer. And then a week later, or maybe an hour later, or a month later, you go, why did I do that? I've gotten myself in such a mess now because I've I've made a commitment to something I should have never made a commitment to. I never really prayed about it. So, my particular prayer or for the leaders here. And if you're analytical. Don't, don't forget this. See, because you can just say, well, God's given me some giftedness of a- analyzing stuff. Okay, but you still got to pray about it. But if, you, if you're a leader, it's easy for somebody to come and say, okay, here's the answer. Maybe. But did you pray about it? Did you really take it to the Lord? Maybe he had a different way, a, a different solution. So so maybe there's something that you need to say, I, I've made this treaty. I've really messed up. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost my family. This treaty cost everyone in Israel. And you just want to write on your card, I, I want to be somebody that, that prayer precedes what I think. Proverbs fourteen twelve. there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. It's exactly what happened here. You assume your analysis was correct, and rather than seeking the Lord's counsel, you just went on your own analysis. I've done that. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, got some scars. Don't recommend it. So maybe on your prayer card, prayer to proceed personal analysis. Then there's this, so there's this sin, and then there's this sincerity, which I really love. It happens a number of times, chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 24. Let's go to chapter 24, verse 16. 
There's this back and forth. Remember, uh, Joshua is giving them a history lesson. And he says, you need, to, you need to serve the Lord. And it's sort of a back and forth. And then they say, we're going to serve the Lord. And then Joshua says, you're not going to serve the Lord. And it's not a way of saying, I don't think you're going to do it. It's a way of sort of affirming that you really are serious about it. No, you're not. Oh, yes, we are. It's, a, it's that kind of feeling. You've done that before in a conversation. Oh, you can't do that. Watch me. I'm going to do that. That's the way it works. And so it's that kind of moment here. They're just reaffirming, yes, we trust in what you said, Joshua. We do trust in the Lord. We are committing our ways. We're, we're sincere about moving towards Christ or towards God in this case. And maybe that's where you are today. In 2015, maybe your assessment is that you've drifted. And now it's time to recommit. Whether it's been apathy, whether it's just been busyness, whatever it is, maybe it's been one of these sins of omission or commission. It's just, I got to get back. I got to recommit. I got to step back up here. And you do it in sincerity. You come back saying, Lord, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I want to step into this. Jonathan Edwards, who's really famous for a number of things, but maybe most famous for his resolutions. These are kind of like New Year's resolutions. And he has 70. He wrote 70. These are the 70 things he lives by. Imagine 70. Wow. Here's number six. Resolve to live with all my might while I live. Every day, I'm going to live with all my might. It's a way of Edward saying, I'm recommitting every day. I can't, I can't rest on yesterday's commitment. I resolve today, if God gets me up, I'm going to live with all my might for him today. And when the sun comes up tomorrow, I'm going to promise to live with all my might towards him. If today you died and you meet God, say, well, let's just analyze 2015. Did you live with all your might? Leads us to the third highlight about Joshua in this book. Joshua, he's all in. This is such a great... Joshua is completely sold out. He's such a great model for, for leaders particularly to follow. He has this singular driving commitment and confidence in the Lord. And this singular driving commitment and confidence in the Lord, it creates such a massive wake. A whole nation is led, led in behind him. This one man's confidence and commitment to the Lord creates such a wake. A whole nation, hundreds of thousands of people come right in behind his wake because he's all in. He's, he's completely sold out. You might remember in, jo- in Numbers chapter 13, you can go look at this up later. But remember when Moses brings the people into the wilderness, they go right up to the front door of the promised land and they send 12 spies into the promised land. Remember that? Go spy it out. The 12 spies come back, and 10 of them say, the land is awesome, but there's giants in the land, and we're grasshoppers, so let's go back. Two of them say, the 10, fear of men bigger than the fear of God. Joshua and Caleb, the fear of God eliminates the fear of mankind. And they say, let's go in right now. 
Let's not delay. This is what God wants for us. Let's go for it. And the ten won over the crowd, and they spent 40 years wandering in the desert. But you see, right at the very beginning of Joshua's life, he is all in. This is what the Lord has. I'm all in. I'm not going to let anything dissuade me from being all in. And he has to wait 40 years to, to lead the people in. Joshua chapter 1, 2 through 9. Uh, again, we said this in the prayer just before entering. Really love this particular passage. God comes to Joshua. So Joshua is the military general. God is the, the great general. And he comes to his, his lesser general and says, okay, General Joshua, we're ready to go. We're ready to, to make this happen. And he gives all this encouragement. He's just blowing this encouragement, trying to fill up Joshua's life. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be discouraged. And then Joshua chapter 1, turn with me, verse 10 and 11. It doesn't sound nearly as exciting in the text as I think it was. And Joshua, so he's got all this energy coming from a a conversation with God. And Joshua, this is Joshua's response, commanded the officers and the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan and go in to take possession of the land and the Lord that the Lord your God has given you to possess. In other words, this commander, this general tells all of his commanders, guys, let's roll. And I don't think he says, get your provisions and pack up your stuff. And no, he just met with the Lord and the Lord saying, Joshua, you've waited 40 years. Let's roll. And Joshua's like, yes. And he probably goes back and wake up. Let's go. Let's roll. It's time to go. And that little phrase was popularized a long time ago, but worked its way into the American culture, you remember, from 9-11. This plane that's now memorialized in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, took off, and there was a guy named Todd Beamers on the phone with somebody, an operator, on the air phone. Hey, what's happening? Our plane has been hijacked. Yes, sir, the operator says. They're driving planes into buildings. And I'm afraid you're on a plane that's in destination for something. And so he has this conversation with this operator. And then towards the end of the conversation, Beamer has another conversation, which is the last part of what this operator remembers hearing. Hey, are you ready? Okay, let's roll. And you're like me. You wonder, could you have done that? It cost him and everybody on the plane their lives. But it avoided that plane being run into the capital of the United States. See, when Joshua says, let's roll... It's dangerous. And I wonder in 2016, there's got to be some people here who need to hear this word. Let's roll. It's time to go. 
that because of, of the clutteredness of your life or because of the busyness of your life or because of fear or because of discouragement, you spent all of 2015 sitting on your hands and God's saying, let's roll. There's a whole world, there's a whole community waiting for somebody to enter in their lives. And maybe it's you and just one person. Or maybe it's you in a whole city. I don't know. But let's roll. So maybe on your prayer card, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm apathetic, my life is so cluttered, but I know it's time for me to, to roll. Josh was all in to the very end, but as for me and my house, what? We'll serve the Lord. He's telling the people. There's going to be all kinds of competition from your old way of life, from your, your father's gods to the Egyptians God. You're pressed in between and they're always going to want you to follow after him. And Joshua saying, as for me and my house to the very end, we're going to serve the Lord. Joshua is sold out. He's all in. And so my question, God's question, are you are you all in? Let me pray for us, and then I'll give you the instructions here. Lord, lots got left unsaid, but what was said, I trust, is from your Holy Spirit to these people. It's a divine appointment for maybe just a word, maybe one of these highlights. And we pray in advance for all of these prayer requests, the people's names, the situations, the events that you would. You, you might be answering something today. You might be answering that prayer 600 years from now. But we pray for the patience to wait. And then when it's time to go, the courage to say, let's roll, let's move. And maybe certainly for some people, that's this year. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.